Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. It sounds like a plot from a Hollywood film, but it's playing out right now in Ukraine. Behind enemy lines, in Russian-occupied parts of the country, some extraordinary men and women are leading a secret counteroffensive. We are a union of Ukrainian patriots, the national resistance, and we're in the Russian-occupied territories. This secret army of civilians is blowing up railway lines, destroying supply vehicles, and even killing people who work with the Russians. We have data about every collaborator. We know where you are and what you're doing, and we'll come to get every one of you. Run away, otherwise the death sentence will be carried out. Glory to the nation, death to its enemies. And this campaign of organised sabotage could be key to Ukraine's fight back as the official military counteroffensive continues to make grindingly slow progress. The counteroffensive is entering its second month, and while it's been met with fierce Russian resistance, there's also been criticism that it's not making enough progress. President Zelensky describing it as slower than desired. Come on, come on. The commander urges his men forwards. And they are making progress, but it's slow work. As the battle continues to rage, could the real difference be made by these secret operations conducted in the shadows? Who are the people carrying out these sabotage missions? How are they recruited? And how has one of them even managed to infiltrate the Russian army? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, behind enemy lines, meet the secret Ukrainian counteroffensive. I'm Maxim Tucker. I'm an assistant foreign editor at The Times. Maxim used to be The Times' Kiev correspondent, and he's been returning to the country regularly ever since the war broke out. On his latest trip, he managed to lift the veil on one of the most secretive parts of the country's fight back. I've been working in Ukraine for more than a decade, and I have developed over time quite good contacts in the Ukrainian intelligence services. And they were looking to highlight the work of their partisans as they try and recruit more members to the partisan movement and help with the Ukrainian counteroffensive, the main push of which is yet to come. And just explain what the partisans are. 
So the partisans are a movement of Ukrainians, mostly come from civilian life, who are living in Russian-occupied areas and want to see the back of the Russian occupation. So they are looking for ways to contribute to Ukraine's victory. Some of them are taking on active combat operations, blowing up bridges, sabotaging supply trucks and depots, and others are simply passing information on to Ukrainian military intelligence. How did you manage to get to speak to them? Was that easy? It wasn't easy. We had a long discussion about how it would be possible to speak to some of them, how we would be able to get enough details about them so that I could verify their identity and without publishing it. Mm. And, you know, some of this had to be conducted via signal, some exchanges of details that were then wiped. And then eventually we got to a point where we could have a call over Zoom with the head of the partisan movement. And they were able to tell you about some of the things they've been doing. Take us back to a sabotage mission that was carried out on a railway intersection a little while ago. Just talk us through what exactly happened. So on the 21st of June, a small group of saboteurs were deep inside Russian-occupied Crimea, and they approached a railway intersection, set explosives, and then pulled back and, and detonated them. And this is a really important railway intersection for Russia because it is carrying heavy ammunition supplies, um, weapons such as anti-aircraft missiles to the Russian front lines. And they blew it up just as the Russians were finishing repairing the Kerch Bridge, which Ukrainian military intelligence had blown up last year. This CCTV video appears to show the moment of the blast. A truck is seen driving on the lane leading towards Crimea when all of a sudden there's a massive explosion. This is the bridge that connects to Crimea. That's right. That's the bridge between Russia and the Crimean Peninsula that was built by Putin to much fanfare. Just how disruptive has that been to the Russians? I think it's incredibly disruptive. Just at the moment that you have Ukraine starting its counteroffensive, you have a big disruption to the amount of heavy weapons that can be taken across from Russia, across the Kerch Bridge, through Crimea and to the southern front lines. And so by carrying out these actions, they are really severely disrupting the Russian frontline effort, but also ensuring that Russia has to divert troops to try and guard its, its logistical bases and is much less effective at fighting on the front. So, Maxim, stepping back, you've said that the people carrying out these incredibly brave incidents of sabotage are effectively people who were, until recently, just normal citizens. Tell us a bit about them. Who are this group? So they really have to fly under the radar, and they're very careful to do so. So they, they maintain ordinary jobs, they keep regular hours, and they live this sort of double life where they then... Um, will take on some kind of sabotage activity after hours. And it could be, you know, as simple as, as a grandmother in a window reporting via her phone military convoys going past. It could be teenagers scattering tyre spikes across the road to, to puncture the tyres of Russian trucks. Or slightly more aggressive things like setting fire to Russian vehicles or, or even just cars marked with a Z to denote support for the war. Right up to those who are actually carrying out what they call liquidations of collaborating officials um, oh, wow. or Russians. So officials in Ukraine who they think are collaborating with Russia. 
Exactly. So maybe city authorities, a Kremlin-installed mayor, these are the kind of targets that they're looking for. And obviously the, the Kremlin are aware of this now and they assign bodyguards to these individuals. The partisans have been quite effective at finding ways around them and often it's, it's through a car bomb placed either on a vehicle that is nearby one of these officials or on the officials' vehicles themselves. And this group of partisans, I mean, do, do they have a name? This group of partisans is called the National Resistance Movement, and they are one of many partisan groups that operate throughout occupied Ukraine, from Mm. Zaporizhia through to Mariupol and Donetsk. And how did this particular group, how did they come into being? This particular group have a very interesting uh, background because they were formed by a captain from the Azov Regiment who was wounded while fighting in the defence of Mariupol. Ukrainian soldiers wounded but alive. Some of the final Ukrainian holdouts from the Azovstal steel plant. They held out for nearly three months, living and fighting from tunnels designed to withstand nuclear attacks. Many of them in the Azov regiment, born from a right-wing militia now integrated into the Ukrainian military. He was very severely wounded and had to stay behind enemy lines. And he was sheltered by civilians who had to move him from house to house to try and avoid the Russians who were looking for him. And so in the process of his recovery, he almost accidentally developed a network of pro-Ukrainian sympathizers in the area, which was the the beginnings of this partisan movement. And because he'd been a, a reconnaissance captain, he already had good communications with colleagues in the Ukrainian military intelligence. And when it transpired that he wasn't able to get back across to Ukrainian lines, they instructed him to stay there and form this partisan movement. So the people working with him, you know, these are ordinary people. Some of them are teenagers, some are grandmothers, and they're doing extraordinary things, often at night under the cover of darkness. And yet during the day, you know, they have to be completely calm, just normal citizens as if nothing has changed. And it's really important to their survival that they act like that. You know, they talked about their experiences of going through Russian checkpoints and how at the first it was nerve-wracking, especially when they had something they needed to conceal. And over time, they do it more and more often, their confidence grows, and they know that keeping a cool head is is the key to not being discovered. So it's it's really fascinating to, to think about how they would have to go around, you know, even traveling around Ukraine as a reporter, you inevitably have to go through lots of checkpoints. And it it's always slightly unnerving when guys with guns, even if they're very polite, are just asking you for your accreditation and might stop you and check the trunk and things like that. And you know you've done nothing wrong, but these guys are actually carrying different kinds of explosives through checkpoints. And you must have a really steely nerve in order to be able to do that. And this group of partisans, you know, it sounds like what they're doing it sounds almost quite ad hoc. Are they working with the government officially? They are working with the government. They take directions from the Ukrainian military intelligence, the GUR, and some of these actions are months in the planning. For example, the the bridge they blew up in Crimea, they took three months to plan that, and they have to be very careful as to how they get there, how they get in and out without being caught or or arousing suspicions. If If, you know, something as simple as taking time out of their day job, they need to explain why they've done that. So some of these things take a very long time in the planning. Others are a bit more ad hoc. You know, if they see a a car with a Z sign on it, they'll go out and burn it that same day. So it really depends on the type of operation. And Maxim, do they ever use Western intelligence in working out 
what they should be targeting. I had an interesting discussion with military intelligence about the way that they, they do this, and they're understandably quite cagey about sharing all the details, but there does seem to be a, a discussion between Western partners who provide satellite images, partisans, and Ukraine's military intelligence. So it might be that the partisans spot something first, and then it's verified by a US satellite, and then a missile is fired by Ukraine's military at that target and verified by the partisans, or it might be that the satellites discover the images first and the partisans verify it. So they, they're playing a role. And some of these targets are actually being hit now by British storm shadow missiles, which have a very long range and are proving really quite decisive in the war effort. So when they are passing on information to the government, when they are getting things blown up, do they have any way of following up and making sure that the right things are being targeted? Yeah, so they told me that it's a really important part of the job is to actually film when the missiles strike their targets, or at least in the immediate aftermath, to, to check what's been hit and what kind of damage has been done and whether the, the coordinates need to be corrected. And although that work can be done by, by people who are not necessarily explosive experts, it's still quite dangerous work because you the, the Russians are really hunting them relentlessly. And they have counter-surveillance teams outside these targets. And, and certainly when something is hit, they're, they're on high alert to check who's filming with a phone. So Filming with a phone has become something that's not innocuous in, in occupied territories. It can really get you in quite a lot of trouble. You heard a, an actual example of, of this happening. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so Verdyansk is a, a major um, port city on the Azov Sea, which has become really important for Russia since it was seized from the Ukrainians. They bring a lot of ammunition in there via boats, um, and they bring a lot of fuel and other supplies. And so it's been a target that Ukraine has wanted to hit for quite a long time, but they didn't have the long-range weapons that they were able to do it until the UK and France supplied these storm shadow missiles. But obviously, they want to know what they're hitting. So that's really when the partisans come into play. They they, they located a, a ship that was providing ammunition to the Russians, and they sent those coordinates back to the Ukrainian military intelligence and then they had a very important task of filming what actually happened. And they say there's two reasons why they always film these missions. One is to check and correct fire as necessary. But the other is because it's important as a kind of information war demotivating tactic to, to demonstrate to the Russians all these things are getting hit and mm. also to motivate the Ukrainian people. So they went for a daytime strike. It was a huge explosion when this boat was hit. Johanny <laughs> That clip you just heard was taken by a young boy who happened to be passing by. So you hear the explosion and then you hear him say, wow, cool. He has nothing to do with the partisan movement. But one of the partisans did take another video. We just can't play it to you in case it helps to identify him. It was a chap who just... He happened to take a break from work, have a cigarette and a coffee, walk along the, the seafront. You have to stroll very casually like nothing's happening. And then just at the right moment, try and capture a video, obviously dodging the Russian counter surveillance teams that are all around the port and making sure that you don't get caught in the process. And Maxim, is it true that some of them, when they carry out their, their own sabotage attacks, they're even leaving effectively a calling card behind? So the National Resistance Movement is really keen now on leaving its mark on Russian occupied territory and letting the Russians know that they're there in order to give them a feeling of insecurity. And so 
in a really quite a daring move, they started carrying these Ace of Spades calling cards with their symbol on, the stylized trident, which looks quite controversial because it's similar to the Wolf's Angel used by lots of far-right groups, including the, the, the SS during the Second World War. The partisans say that this is actually an N and an I, and it's from old Cossack coats of arms. It is controversial. The, the Azov regiment actually dropped this symbol last year because mm. of its, it was being used by the Russians to propagate the idea that Ukraine is, has got lots of Nazi sympathizers in it. And when I spoke to them, they, they do wholeheartedly reject kind of far-right ideology, but they think this is a, it's a kind of quick, effective thing that you can graffiti, it's, it's recognizable, and it speaks to kind of ancient Ukrainian origins and, and the Cossacks, which, which they find very appealing. So they are leaving these at, at the scene of places where they've killed a collaborator or burnt cars or even just graffiti, wherever they can, really. But this makes their work a lot more dangerous because if you're found with this calling card, that's really it for you. The Russians yeah. know that you're part of this partisan movement and they haven't been very kind to those they've caught so far. So what happens to people who are caught with one of those cards on them? They told me that two of the partisans that they were working with had simply disappeared and they, they suspected that, that they'd been shot. And in other cases, the Russians have turned upside down villages nearby sabotage attacks, searching for cards or other information and beating villages. It's really astonishing that people are prepared to take such extraordinary risks because when you're living in Russian-occupied territory, you're not just going to be shot at because you're wearing camouflage, you'll, you'll probably be tortured and, and then you'll likely disappear. Coming up, the man risking exactly that because he's managed to infiltrate the Russian army. That's in just a moment. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. So, Maxim, you've told us a little bit about some of the things that this group are getting up to, whether it's blowing up railway lines or causing sabotage that will be unhelpful for the Russians. Did they tell you anything about what might be coming up in the future? Yes, it, it was a, a real kind of tug of war in some respects because I was looking for a, a kind of strong character-driven story. The story of at least one individual who, who are part of this partisan movement rather than just in, in general what they're doing. And they were very reluctant to share that with me. But through the course of these discussions, it, it emerged that they had infiltrated the Russian army. And that was a obviously a very interesting story that we hadn't heard before. And, you know, after lots of discussions and, and kind of back and forth with different military intelligence officers, they agreed to tell the story, and, and he agreed as well, of one young man who they've codenamed Dmitry. 
He is a, a, a young man who's only recently graduated from university in the past few years, and he volunteered to join the National Resistance. Did he have to prove himself? Was there any kind of vetting procedure for him? So yes, when, when people try and join up the National Resistance Movement, they are vetted, their details are passed on to Ukrainian military intelligence to check their background. And because, of course, they're aware that the Russian security services are always trying to infiltrate them. And as part of the selection for these more active combat duties, they start off just doing not very dangerous acts. Maybe it's graffiti, maybe it's scattering these these tire spikes across the road. And then you step up a level, so having to, what they say, liquidate and kill a, a collaborating official. And he, after he'd carried out those tasks, they decided that he was loyal enough to send on, on this, this mission. But obviously they weren't sure whether it would succeed and they were quite concerned about it. So tell us about the very start of that mission. I mean, how did they actually get him into the Russian army? How does he get recruited? So they selected him to go and try and join up with the Russian military. And in this kind of extraordinary story for someone so young, he then had to go and present himself at a Russian recruiting station, you know, fill in all the particulars to the recruiters, and then went on a two-month training across the border in Rostov-on-Don and was assigned to a forward base where they allocate different soldiers to their unit. So he was right in the, in the thick of the Russian army within two months. And Maxim, why wouldn't the Russians have been more suspicious of a Ukrainian who turns up and suddenly wants to join the Russian army? He'd been living in a Russian-occupied Donbass for the, the past eight years, since the 2014 hybrid war. He hadn't expressed any pro-Ukrainian identity. He'd been quite sensible. He comes from a good family and there's, there's nothing really remarkable about him. He reflects some people from the Donbass region who've been able to infiltrate the Russian military because Russia views the area of Donbass as sympathetic to Russia and it kind of expects that the people that they once called separatists would swear allegiance to the Russian flag. And for him, you know, having gone and joined the army, I mean, that's a 24-hour job. You know, you, you never have time where you can switch off and be yourself again. What has he been doing? So when he reached this forward base, he discovered he was not far from the front lines and there were about 600 Russian recruits there and there were very senior officers, including colonels, on the base who were helping to distribute these recruits to where they are most needed. And so he communicated to the Ukrainian military intelligence that it was a good target and they determined that it was within range of, of the kind of US-provided HIMARS missile systems. And then they had to make this very difficult decision on whether they should fire on that base when he was there or how they would get him out. And in the end, they all decided it was too good an opportunity to pass up. And he just had to send in his location via his telephone. And he didn't know exactly when or where the HIMARS would strike, but obviously he was on the alert to it. And as soon as the first missile came in, he heard it coming in, he knew what was happening. So he, he just ran and he was caught in the blast, but he, he wasn't killed. Is he, is he okay? Do we know? You said he's, he survived. Do we know how he is? He was injured, and we know that he is recovering. He's still on the Russian side, so he's in a Russian hospital, and he's still part of the Russian military. 
which was you know part of the difficult conversation with Ukrainian military intelligence about whether they should reveal the existence of this operation. But in the end, I think they felt they'd come to a point where we, we gave enough details about the story without naming exactly which base or what date and you know his unit so that he might get away again a second time. I think they also decided it would be no bad thing if, if the Russians are second guessing every Donbass recruit that they take in at a time when morale is, is already very bad in the Russian armed forces. That's interesting because I have to admit, when I read this story, I did think, why on earth are they telling you so much about Dmitry? When, you know, he is still in the Russian army and the Russian army could very easily try and find him. It wasn't easy to get this information out of them, but they really, really want a story about the partisan movement to be out there, an inspiring story that will, you know, inspire other Ukrainians to to join up because they really want more active sabotage missions behind the front lines at a time just before Ukraine is prepared to commit its its main assault. You know, the counteroffensive is, is already underway, but we haven't seen the main assault yet. We, they've only committed maybe three out of the 12 brigades that have been trained for, by the West for this counteroffensive. And, you know, by, by showing these exploits, I, I can see that they're trying to get more people to come and volunteer to be partisans. But, I mean, it also sounds terrifying. You know, if you're Dmitry, you're on your own now behind enemy lines. How much support does he get from the Ukrainian government? They can't get very much support because anything that they're given would expose them. So the partisans maybe get the occasional cryptocurrency wallet delivered to them, which they can then convert into local money and buy things that they might need for a mission. Um, And they have uh, the Ukraine military intelligence finds ways to drop them other equipment that they need. But you can't obviously be paying large amounts of cash to these individuals as reward for what they've done because you know their lifestyles would change and they they would become obvious targets. So it, it is it's quite astonishing what they're doing. And I think part of the reason they want to tell this story is because in these telegram chats, which which I'm part of, they are trying to encourage and inspire each other to to go on and and do more dangerous and more daring activities. And it's it's interesting because it's an anonymous online community, right? But they're trying to encourage each other and there's this feeling of solidarity within the group as well. And are they just doing this in Ukraine? You know, we, we heard about Dmitry, who's obviously crossed over, but to go and join the Russian army. You know, given that a lot of them are from Donbass and places where they would speak perfect Russian, do we know if they're also going in behind enemy lines for sabotage attacks there. That's not something that the Ukrainian military intelligence are, are willing to talk about, but obviously we've seen you know, assassinations inside Russia of high-profile pro-war propagandists. Blogger Vladlin Tatarsky was killed after a blast at this restaurant. Local media reports that Tatarsky had been presented with a figurine and that the figurine was the source of the explosion. And we've seen drone attacks that would have had to rely on some form of of information. Russian media is saying five drones have been intercepted in Moscow and the nearby Kaluga region. A number of flights scheduled to land as well at Moscow's Nukukovo airport had to be redirected to other airports. A pretty remarkable breach of Russian air defences for a drone like that to fly all the way across the country and hit the Kremlin. And, you know, with, with the, the recent mutiny by Prigozhin, it's, it's clear that there are divided loyalties in Russia and, and people are not just blindly supporting the Kremlin. So there are clearly networks. It might not be the National Resistance Network. 
But I think we know about already Russian partisans who are working with Ukrainian military intelligence. And in terms of Dmitry, you know, we left him on a hospital bed somewhere in Russia. What, what happens next for him? So if he can recover fully from his injuries, he will probably be deployed again, um, deployed somewhere to the front lines and be able to provide even more information to the Ukrainians. I think that's certainly what, what they're hoping for. Could he be promoted? That was one of the things that the Ukrainian military intelligence were, were joking to me that, you know, he's obviously a great soldier. He's very brave. He does what, exactly what you need him to do at the right moment. And he's obviously got some kind of canny sixth sense that's helped him survive so far. So he makes a great soldier for the Ukrainians, but he also makes a great soldier in theory for the Russians. And they their joke that he, he might expect to be promoted at any moment. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, Maxim Tucker, Assistant Foreign Editor at The Times. You can find all of Maxim's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producer today was Olivia Case. The executive producers were Kate Ford and James Shield, and sound design was by David Crackles. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.